everyone and welcome to episode 29 of the Retrospectors podcast. My name is Patrick Arthur and I'm joined as always by my co-host James Sterlings. We've got a uh, hell of a large episode ready for today, James. You uh, you ready to talk about video games for the next few hours? Oh, I don't mind talking about video games for three hours, but uh, the editing tomorrow is going to be a real bitch. I am uh, very grateful that I'm not doing the editing because I have a feeling that today's episode is going to be a very long one. We are, of course, the Retrospectors Podcast. Each and every fortnight, we play a classic game of the past through to completion. And then, to the best of our ability, we have a discussion and possibly an argument about whether that title has truly stood the test of time. We're not interested in evaluating these games in the context and time in which they were made. We simply want to know how fun they are to play today, compared side by side with the titles that release every single weekend. So this fortnight, we tackled the behemoth of a game, Heroes of Might and Magic 3. Before we get into the substance of the episode, where we'll break down every aspect of this game to the best of our ability, uh, we first have a mailbag question from last week, though. Each week, we like to uh, answer a question about a previous episode. Last week, we did Katamari Damacy, and so we're going to ask a question that was from our Discord server. So the mailbag question is from user do boulders gate to you cowards also known <laughs> as Ben who uh, desperately wants us to do a game that takes 90 hours to play but uh it's going to be a while before we can do that one justice a long long time we had to spend the full four weeks playing uh, heroes of might and magic for this episode so i have no idea how long a game like boulders gate 2 would take us but um ben asks patrick you criticized Kirby Nightmare in Dreamland pretty harshly for its lack of difficulty. However, you gave Katamari Damacy glowing praise. What aspects of Katamari do you feel allowed it to offer an enjoyable experience without providing a challenge? It's a good question because I'm always banging on about how I crave challenge in video games and how I want to be engaged in order to enjoy them. And I think the best way for me to answer this question is... I want video games to engage me, but it doesn't necessarily need to be through challenge. There's a lot of ways that media can engage you. If a game has a fantastic story, for example, and there's a story-driven experience, that can be just as engaging as, um, as challenge. In the case of Katamari Damacy, the thing that was engaging and interesting about it was the novelty. For those who've never played the game, uh, the premise of the entire experience is you have a sticky ball and you need to roll up objects. And as you roll up these small objects, your sticky ball grows and grows and grows. And it keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger until you're rolling up literal skyscrapers in your sticky ball. And that whole experience of uh of ascending in size to such ridiculous heights was novel and fun and wonderful i think that the crime that kirby commits is that despite having these potentially interesting mechanics in the fact that there are like 25 different abilities for kirby to steal it basically does nothing interesting with any of them. It doesn't use them in a puzzling way. It doesn't have enemies that are weak to certain attacks. 
it, it doesn't do anything interesting that makes you engaged with the game. You just kind of hold down right and keep pressing attack every now and then. So, yeah, broadly speaking, a game doesn't need to be challenging, but it needs to be engaging me in some facet of what it's presenting to me. And uh, Katamari Damacy certainly did that. Kirby's Nightmare and Dreamland did not. Yeah, for me, it was mostly the high score aspect of Katamari. You know, it wasn't something that I was super interested in, but just a little kind of trying to be efficient with where I was rolling and trying to keep track of what size things are where on the map so that I could go to them at the right time was pretty fun. Um, even if, you know, it was pretty trivial to actually beat the levels, it did push you to do the best you could, and um, that brings it some value. And the timer did give you a... I guess what I'd say is a false sense of anxiety because yeah. by the end of the level, you realize you have a lot more time than you thought you'd have initially. But in the first few minutes when your Katamari is quite small, uh, you you start feeling pretty nervous. You're yeah. looking up at that clock a lot. Yeah, so e- even though it's not challenging, it at least has you focused on the experience in a way that Kirby didn't really. Yeah, absolutely. So um, thank you to Ben for that question. And uh, if any of you want to ask your own questions, feel free to come over to Discord and, you know, put them in our mailbag channel and we'll definitely answer any that you've got. So uh, I guess this brings us to the main topic of today, which is, of course, Heroes of Might and Magic 3. Patrick, have you ever had any experience with this series or with the kind of broader strategy genre as a whole? So I've got some experience with the genre, but I wouldn't consider myself an expert. Specifically with Heroes, when I was very young, I remember playing Heroes of Might and Magic 2, or I at least remember being in the same room as my cousins who might have been playing it. And I remember there was a cheat that could give you black dragons. And that's all (laughs) I remember of Heroes of Might and Magic 2. Later on, when I was a little bit older, I did play a lot of Heroes of Might and Magic 4, but that was more me being a stupid kid, you know, getting a hero leveled up and running around having that hero punch enemy stacks. I didn't really, I guess, appreciate it critically at that point in time. Uh, Speaking more broadly, like with the four-time genre and, you know, strategy games in general, I've played, you know, StarCraft 2 and WarCraft 3 and Dawn of War. I've played Civilization and I've played a little bit of Total War, but I don't consider myself good at these games. I'm more casual with it in that I kind of appreciate them from a distance. I enjoy watching pros play, but they tend to be too stressful and complicated for me to really, really get into. Most recently, the strategy slash tactics game I've played the most is definitely Into the Breach, which I think is fantastic game so I, I would say i'm like an invested casual in this genre an invested casual <laughs> excellent <laughs> um myself i've really only played a bit of civilization and you know a few rts games like warcraft 3 like yourself um really i basically a baby to this genre honestly this is probably my biggest foray into it since oh, i don't know maybe 10 years ago excluding you know recent civilization games so i really really have no experience coming into this so i was very excited to find out uh, what all the fuss was about because i've heard from many many people that this is you know one of their favorite games ever that they come back to year after year so yeah i guess i guess you could typify my experience like i'm kind of broadly familiar with a lot of the concepts that underpin this this sort of game 
But yeah, I felt very fresh and amateurish coming into this game for the first time. So mm. I feel like a newcomer to the game in a lot of ways. Yeah, definitely. So um, one of the hallmarks of this genre, from my understanding, is that there's usually a lot going on under the hood on these types of games. Um, so did you want to kind of give everybody who hasn't played the game a bit of a rundown on, on it? Yeah, absolutely. But um, before I do that, just a quick bit of housekeeping and an overview of how we approach the game. So we played the entirety of the Restoration of Arathia campaign, which is the base campaign of Heroes of Might and Magic 3. And this is, of course, hardly a comprehensive overview, but the nature of our show means that we can only invest a certain amount of time in the game each week. So we've had about, I don't know, 25 hours experience playing the game, thereabouts. And we were also playing with the HD mod. Uh, it's basically a bunch of quality of life fixes. It gives you widescreen, it gives you options to auto-resolve combat, things like that. The essential gaming experience is the same. It's just with some nice fixes for modern modern computers. And we, we chose this based off um, discussion with people on the Heroes subreddit and the Heroes Discord. So thank you to those people who helped us arrive at that conclusion. And we will try and do this review justice. So to give an overall perspective on what Heroes of Might and Magic 3 is, it's a turn-based strategy game where you control armies, which are led by heroes. And your goal is generally to try to control as much territory as possible on each and every map. Uh, your base and unit buildings come from static structures called towns that are built up over the course of the game. So unlike, say, an RTS game where you sprawl your base out by buying uh, individual buildings, instead you have a static town that sits on the map. You can open up that town and build buildings inside that town to expand its production capabilities. Yeah, and uh, unlike an RTS, say, there's no workers or anything like that. When you click build on a building, it builds instantly. But critically, you can only build one building a day per town. And this is very important for, you know, kind of the strategy that we'll get into later. So each map is covered with neutral units that are guarding uh, resources, mines, which, you know, are just neutral buildings that produce a constant stream of resources and uh, artifacts that can power up your heroes, uh, as well as, you know, just random buildings that provide a variety of you know, varied bonuses. Um, you strive to dominate the map, like to control as much resources as possible because, you know, the more resources you have, the more armies you can build and you can eventually reach military ascension and uh, win the scenario. So as James has alluded to, there is a lot of stuff to talk about today. So what I'm going to try and do broadly speaking is we're going to try and start big and we're going to narrow our way down. And there'll be diversions here or there as we deep dive on certain aspects. Many, many, but I expect. Well, yeah, it's just the nature of a game like this with that's so complicated. Yeah, it really is. And it's probably good that we start, you know, kind of from a broader overview so that people don't get lost while they're listening to us. Um, with that in mind, where did you want to start? So I think the logical place to start is the story. And I know that people don't consider the story to be of the utmost importance when discussing this game, but for the context of this show, we played through the restoration of Arathia campaign, which does have a story, so we may as well start there. Mm. So 
the story of Restoration of Arathia is honestly a little bland and boring. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's not the flashiest of stories, but I guess the general premise is that uh, there are several factions in Heroes of Might and Magic 3, from, you know, your basic humans to all sorts of weird and wonderful creatures that are all essentially trying to wrest control of Arathia from each other, which is the main continent that you play on. And you begin the game playing as the continent's natives, um, the Arathians, who are just, you know, your human faction. And then, you know, you'll switch control between all the various factions of the game uh, in each of their own campaigns campaigns to try and seize a bit of this continent for themselves. If I had to identify the main problem with the campaign and story, it would be the complete lack of characterization. Uh, There's no real easily identifiable characters, and it's very hard to be emotionally invested in any faction's desire to do anything. And I mean, you can see that. What is the faction called? Dungeon. What is this faction called? Castle. It's all very bland and uninspired and dull. I have no emotional investment in anything happening. It's just generic Kingdom A being invaded by generic Kingdom B. The game gives me no reason to care one way or the other. Yeah, the way I would describe it is it feels like modern fantasy writing has moved past this level. Like, um... Your units consist of things like Griffin and Wizard, whereas, like, a lot of modern fantasy tales really spruce things up with a lot of, like, flashy layers on top of it, whereas this is very, very simple, very generic fantasy with not a lot on top of it. Um, I don't think the story itself is particularly engaging, but I do think that, you know, the overall concept of the story leads itself very well to the actual gameplay that goes on throughout the campaign. Yeah, I mean, all I could think while playing this was Warcraft 3 did a much better job. And there are some parallels between this and Warcraft 3, particularly without, you know, getting too spoilery, the way the different factions eventually team up to overcome a greater evil. But what Warcraft 3 was, it had heroes with personality and foibles and flaws. And, you know, Warcraft 3 doesn't have the greatest writing in all the world, but... I was emotionally invested in its characters and I can barely remember the name of a single character in this entire game, despite, you know, having played it for the past four weeks. Once again, the story is not the main event here. I just found it completely uninspired and boring. It doesn't help that it's told through some of the worst cutscenes I've ever seen in a video oh, game. Man. I don't yes. even think these things would have been good for the time. They were just like, there's almost value to them in that they're so bad they're good. Every time I look at them, I just can't help but laugh. They look worse than playing the actual game. I got really triggered by... um. The opening cutscene where so the Queen, Queen Aratia is wearing her boob plate armor. And it's just like, it's just so weird to see stuff like this after The, the Witcher 3 has um, the Queen, sorry, not The Witcher 3, The Witcher TV show has the Queen in her armor and she's a certified badass and she's just wearing normal armor, not the ridiculous lingerie armor that is being worn by the Queen. And it's just very disappointing. Don't play this game for the story. It's complete balls. Yeah, I um, I think that the games does an okay job 
of presenting some characters if you go out of your way to look for it. When you're playing in game, you can kind of right click over one of your hero's portraits and it'll give you a little blurb of text giving them their backstory. And some of these were actually, you know, kind of okay. But for the most part, I've got to agree with you, this story's bland as hell, but uh, the story is not what we're here for, let's be honest. Yeah, that's true. So I don't want to spend too much time. Just uh, It's just funny, we were talking about the different ways in which games can engage you, and uh, the story of this game certainly did not engage me. No, but nobody's here for the story, Patrick. <laughs> yeah, that is true. So, so let's get into the meat and potatoes of, uh, of Heroes of Might and Magic 3. So the first thing I want to talk about is the economy. Every single strategy game, or the vast majority at least, have some kind of economy, and they all do it in slightly different ways. So I wanted to do a deep dive into how the economy in Heroes of Might and Magic 3 functions because I think it is quite different from a lot of modern takes on strategy games and it was very difficult for me to wrap my head around at first. The thing about Hero of Might and Magic 3's economy is it's identifying where the choke points in production are. So you can only build buildings in your town once per day per town. Your troops get replenished once a week, but they'll only be generated if you already have the structure that generates them. Then you've also got structures that give you literally more gold or more population growth. And when I first started playing this game, and even even when I finished it, I found it very, very difficult to be able to prioritize whether I should be focusing on pure economy in the traditional sense, that is generating resources versus generating the potential for units. And when I've played other strategy games, you know, your things like StarCraft 2 or whatever, it's always a lot clearer to me kind of like when I need to expand and how many unit production buildings I need for the number of expansions I have. With Heroes, I was constantly confused as to whether I should be concentrating on building up my literal economy versus my unit economy. Oh, I see what you mean. Yeah, did you struggle to find that balance? Because even towards the end, a lot of the time I was completely unsure which I was meant to focus on or the balance that I was meant to strike. Yeah, I kind of figured it out near the end. I actually think it's kind of faction-specific, which you focus at which points in the game. This game's very different to other strategy games in that usually you get gold and resource with the goal of producing troops, and if you manage to create an overwhelming economic advantage, you can just shit out troops as much as you want in other games, right? That's not the mm-hmm. case here in Heroes 3, because in Heroes 3, every week you only have a certain amount of units that you can possibly buy. For example, the new week starts and you your fort says you can buy 10 warriors and 5 archers. That's the maximum number of units you can get for the entire week. It doesn't matter if you have infinite money or resources, you can still only buy those 10 warriors and 5 archers. So, 
what I found it was that in the very first week of starting the game, it was very efficient just to build all of the like the unit producing buildings, mm-hmm. even if you weren't going to buy the actual units, because if they're just there, then in the future when you need to buy them, you're going to have like an abundance of units to purchase. Whereas I mm-hmm. ran into this issue early on where I was focusing on getting gold and other structures first, and that was like really crippling me early on because I would suddenly not have enough units to produce because I hadn't like focused on that to begin with. Yeah, the other reason to focus on units is that you cannot expand freely in this game. Like in a in an RTS or even in, in other four times titles, you can expand as much as your resources and an ability to defend those expansions allows. In order to expand in heroes, you need to conquer an enemy town. And when you conquer an enemy town, you get their uh, gold production facilities and you get more unit production facilities. But until you conquer that town, your effective production is somewhat capped. So it's far better off, at least I found in my experience, like you, to build lots of units and kind of use your units as a way to eventually conquer other towns to get your economy properly rolling. Yeah, it's very similar to a lot of, I guess, um, like MOBA-style games where you use your heroes to kind of control areas of the map rather than building buildings there. Um, You kind of have to, like, slowly creep your way across the map with different heroes protecting different parts of the map until you have, you know, complete map control. Because in this game, I find it's very snowball-y. Once you control a significant portion of the map's resources... It's just a matter of waiting until your economic advantage uh, outdoes that of your opponent. Because if you take, you know, three out of the four towns on the map, then every week you're effectively producing three times as many units as your opponent. And it's kind of just a waiting game from that point on. It's kind of a problem intrinsic to all strategy games, though, once you hit a certain advantage. And it can be as small as 60%. Like you said, victory is inevitable, at least on most of the campaign missions. There were one or two which I think were a little bit different. But in in most instances, yes, the difficulty is in achieving the 60%, particularly when you're not often starting from even Steven like you would in a multiplayer map. In a lot of these maps during the campaign, the odds are very much against you from the beginning and you need to kind of claw your way to equity before you can actually start winning. Yeah, and we've spoken a bit about how your town and the buildings that you build kind of affect your economy because, like, as we said, you can only build one structure every day. So you're effectively pigeonholing yourself in a direction in the first week depending on what you build. So generally, I'll try to build a couple of unit structures at the start um, to get my unit production up and then kind of focus on upgrading the important ones because each faction effectively has a bunch of different units it can make of varying power levels and um, their unit structure can be upgraded to make a stronger version. So the problem with upgrading to a stronger version is that it doesn't increase uh, your unit numbers like originally buying the structure does, 
but it's very important that you get a couple of these in order to make sure that your army's strong. So it's kind of this game of trying to pick and choose between your army strength and, you know, your long-term economy growth. Yeah, just in general, I think it's quite a feat that the economic micromanagement is so complicated and difficult to grasp. I don't think it's difficult to grasp. I think the way this game is, is that when you first start out, you kind of just play the game, or at least it was in my experience, that I would just kind of build every structure, like whichever one I wanted in whatever day with no rhyme or reason, uh, eventually have a town with fully upgraded structures, and then, you know, overwhelm my enemy with a superior economy and numbers, because the difficulty was, you know, on an easier difficulty at the start of the campaign, which meant you just, like, naturally got more units, so, you know, you just eventually win. Um, whereas... I mean, I'm not I'm not disputing the fact that you can face roll your way to victory in the first few campaigns. I'm just saying that for me, it was a constant struggle figuring out the optimal way to proceed, particularly when I started getting multiple towns. Because when you start getting multiple towns, when you first acquire them, you start to really run out of resources and you need to really pick and choose what you're going to upgrade. Are you going to get a more powerful mages tower? Are you going to expand unit production in your third town? Are you going to upgrade your units here with your primary faction? And I never really knew what the correct option was. Like I was kind of always guessing and kind of pushing and prodding and testing things out that, that's what i mean by it's complicated and difficult to grasp yeah i guess like near the end of the game i started figuring out some like build orders i guess um you would mm -hmm. call them for certain factions because i particularly enjoyed one of the factions fortress and spent a, a while doing randomly generated maps trying to figure out the optimal way to play them and by you know three or four scenarios in i felt like i had a pretty good grasp of what this faction was good at, what its strengths and weaknesses were, and kind of how I should be trying to play them, which is overall like pretty aggressive and early. And when you play one of these like really aggressive towns, uh, you do find that it stops being... Because I was playing this game like Civilization when I started. I was just holed up in my town, making a cool town as big as I could, and then finally winning. Um, when you try to play fast and aggressive, every decision matters because time is very limited before your opponent gets an army that's better than your early game units. So you kind of have to lock yourself into you know, a few key unit buildings and then try to snowball from there very early on. And it, it feels much more restrictive when you play like that. And I think the decisions mattering a lot more made it a bit more fun for me when I stopped playing it with this, like, laid-back style that I had been. Well, this seems like a good time to segue into, I guess, your general strategy. So, like I said... I think we both identified that the goal of most of these maps in the campaign is to achieve economic dominance. Like you want to control 60%, 75% of the map. And once you do that, victory is inevitable. Yeah, I find that you basically win the game like halfway through the total playtime in each level and the rest of it mm -hmm. is just going through the motions. We should mention, of course, that the economic buildup that you create in your towns is only half, really, of the economic struggle in Heroes because the other half is economic control through map domination and map control. 
every map is absolutely scattered with loose resources and mines that give you a continual replenishing source of resources. So hunkering down in your town actually isn't an effective strategy because the other people will out economy you just by through map control. So not only are military units essential to eventually conquer other towns to expand your economy, you also want to have units constantly trying to control all these mines and resources and artifacts as much as you possibly can. So that's just more incentives to not hunker down, to rapidly expand, to spread your forces out, to try and achieve economic supremacy. Yeah, when I started playing Heroes 3, one of the things that really struck me as being unique to start with was the fact that there's so much fucking stuff all over the map to interact it's with. so like, overwhelming. There's yeah. so much. Um, the, like you mentioned, there are the mines, which when you control them by, you know, placing your hero on them give you maybe two of a resource a day there is loose resources for example you can get 15 wood in one go by picking them up um there is gold everywhere there are little random events like there's a tree that gives your hero plus one to their current level um there are quests there are like random neutral monster encounters to grind for xp there is so much stuff all over the map teleport points uh things that increase your movement movement speed for the next week stuff that gives you free spells you name it there are hundreds of these things right and they are very densely packed to the point where oftentimes you'll have to pick and choose what you move your hero to to pick up because you can be a bit squeezed on time sometimes well yeah and i mean and the thing is you have to like you have to pick and choose and eventually you can get everything and i tended to get most of the things at least in my initial half of the map by the end of their campaign. But yeah, you do need to pick and choose. I guess I have a problem, and I, I had problems determining what exactly was of value and what wasn't. I figured out that mines were really valuable, but apart from that, I still don't remember what half the buildings do. Yeah, like really early on, you should really try to identify what kinds of resources um, that your faction is hungry for. Um, you know, there's like there's wood, there's rock, there's sulfur, there's crystals, you name it. There's like nine of these different resources. Um, and generally, each faction will be hungry for, you know, a specific one. For example, uh, Fortress, I believe, is pretty hungry for wood. So early on, you want to get a wood mine and some wood as fast as possible, like prioritizing it over just picking up random gold or fighting any enemies just to make sure that your economy gets a good start. But I generally found that as I played on... Instead of, you know, because when I first started playing, what I would do is I would have one superhero that go around decimating everything. And then as I got better and better, I would control like, you know, because you can have up to like eight units on the map at once. I would have, you know, maybe three near the beginning, two of which were just scouting about. Uh, picking up stray resources and mines and, you know, kind of showing me where I should be taking my main army. But I think that the all the stuff on the map makes it pretty engaging. Yeah, so was that your general strategy to have heaps of heroes spread around? Because it certainly was mine. Uh, like you, when I started, I stuck to one or two heroes just because I found the experience kind of overwhelming. Like yep. there, there's so much going on that it's hard to think about juggling multiple heroes with multiple armies. But by the end of the campaign, I'd have eight heroes 
all the time and yep. there'd be a lot of ferrying back and forth, you know, moving armies around and like you'd reach these points where your armies would be kind of split up but you'd need to crack a difficult fortress. So you'd bring all your armies together and kind of combine them into a massive army temporarily, take a fight, and then you'd have to split it all up all over again. Yeah, that was definitely my experience. I basically, like near the very end, what was happening is I like three out of eight of my dudes would actually have an army um, and I would mm. move them about fighting neutral monsters. And as you said, generally would combine them into a bigger one to take a city. Uh, and then I'd have like two or three scouts and then a bunch of heroes whose sole job was to run back to town, get more units and bring them to my main generals. And that's all they did. They were essentially like Dota couriers. Yeah, so we should mention in Heroes 3, uh, your armies cannot be divided from your heroes. I am aware that in later entries, your armies can travel as separate units, which makes it easier to ferry them to them. But if you want to move units, they need to have a hero attached to them. So it creates this kind of ferrying system where you kind of have heroes hanging about, you know, kind of in a general area, ready to reposition to wherever you need them to go. We should probably define a hero at some point too. <laughs> yeah, of course. I mean, like I said, it's it's difficult to, uh, <laughs> to talk about all of this at once. So yeah. your units in Heroes of Might and Magic 3 are split, I guess, into two things. You've got armies and you've got heroes. Heroes are units that are kind of the generals of your armies. They have a variety of skills. They can learn magic or they can learn they can learn scouting abilities. They can learn abilities that buff the attack and defense of your units. They can learn diplomacy, which lets them convince units to join you. They can learn necromancy and raise the dead. There's a whole bunch of different skills that they can learn. Uh, in addition, they can wield these powerful artifacts that you see scattered around. Most of those artifacts just provide various passive bonuses. So, you know, they'll improve one of your skills or give you your passive gold or they'll improve, you know, a particular school of magic you subscribe to. But there are some more powerful ones that do funkier things. The other half of the equation is the armies represented with these stacks of units. So you'll have... 34 devils each devil might do six to eight damage but all 34 of those devils will exist as a single unit so their powers will be that's combined. a pretty weak devil although inferno is pretty shit <laughs> that is true as far as devils go the horn devils are not the uh they're no arch devils <laughs> yeah <laughs> And those single stacks, those thirty-four devils, they'll appear as a single unit in your um, in your on the army screen uh, and in the tactical screen. As the name of the game suggests, these heroes are grouped into heroes of might and magic. And generally, what this means is, when a hero levels up, they will get stack growths based on some weightings that are like hidden from the player. So, like magic heroes, like have a higher chance of getting you know magic boost to their stats which they roll randomly every time they level up and when you level up you're presented with two skill up options which 
again are presented to you based on some hidden internal weighting which you know as patrick said like a school of magic or maybe some extra offense and you generally like figure out what you want to do with the hero and then level them up accordingly oftentimes um there are some fairly interesting decisions and every hero has a passive specialization that kind of further incentivizes what you pick for example one hero might be specialized in necromancy for example uh so you're incentivized to pick everything that benefits having a lot of skeletons but you know it's still up to you the game gives you a lot of options and you don't have to choose what it kind of suggests you do yeah so your army your composition of military forces is the various armies that you build from the towns and that you can also recruit from some neutral structures and then your heroes which spearhead those armies who have give very powerful passive bonuses and can cast some very very powerful magic very powerful magic <laughs> uh, insanely busted is probably a better way to describe yeah. it <laughs> because yeah on one side you've got good passive bonuses and then on the other side it feels like you've got game breaking nonsense but uh we'll get, we'll get into the game breaking nonsense later and we're gonna be talking about a lot of game breaking nonsense yeah but but broadly speaking strategy wise that's the way you approach each scenario is similar sometimes you can't be as aggressive sometimes you kind of need to play defense for a little while as you slowly expand and be ready to retreat and defend against incursions into your territory other times you need to rush like it feels like if you wait too long it's impossible to win because the enemy's economy is larger than yours at the beginning so if you don't kind of get the jump on them uh, within the correct time frame you're in big trouble but you're always spreading your forces out you always have heaps of heroes you're always trying to establish control over as much territory as you can as safely as the you can. various factions all have their own i'm gonna say power spikes for example some factions are really strong at the start of the game and some at the end of the game so really the decisions you make throughout are kind of faction dependent and based on where you spawn on the map and what kind of resources you have available to you which is something i really like about this game is that it has a lot of variance um through playing the different factions through the random skill ups through the random magic you get at your mage tower and you know the resources that spawn around you but ultimately it kind of feels like your decisions are still really impactful oh absolutely uh, your decisions are very impactful and there is a lot of variance although i will say unlike you i don't think my fundamental strategy changed very much there were nuances and subtleties to the way i pursued different strategies I don't think I was as clear as you were on the particular faction's power spikes, mm. but my but my general strategy of trying to control territory and spacing out my heroes was pretty much exactly the same on every single okay. on every single map that I played. Okay, yeah, because once I started getting into it a bit more, I tried to 
dive deep on a couple of the factions and i found that i was playing for Mm -hmm. example fortress very different to the castle games that i had um whereas like usually when i played fortress i wouldn't get an end game town i would just rush my way to victory whereas with castle who have a lot of really powerful late game units and just units in general i was very happy just stalling out the game until i had a huge stack of archangels uh to rain destruction down on my enemy with interesting because i always kind of tried to pursue a more moderate middle of the road path where i would expand try and take as much territory as i could and then as i hit the end of a week's sorry the beginning of a week's production and i kind of got that surge in units Mm. i would try and use that each the beginning of each week was like a potential powerpoint for me to actually do some real damage yeah no i agree with that um i actually think that this game really does a good job of that kind of you know when you're playing civilization and you're just like one more turn one more turn one Mm. more turn well in this game because units only come every seven days it's more like one more week just seven more turns (laughs) just seven more turns (laughs) so you you are always looking forward to that you're always looking forward to that big boost in power or your next building um and you know i think this game definitely captures that feeling very well yeah um i just want to say like i said i didn't have much strategical variety in the way i approached it so it could just be that you grasped the game's nuances a lot more successfully than i did but i felt that largely i was doing the same thing um in a, in a broad in a broad broad strategic sense yeah i think that i felt like i played the way you're describing for quite a while and i think that a big part of that is that every faction has its own roster of units that it can create and over time as you play each faction more and more you kind of get a feel for which units are good and which units Mm -hmm. are bad it's a gut feeling yeah yeah but the first couple of days when i was playing heroes of might magic 3 i found that to me all of the units were just a big ball of numbers that meant nothing to me um and because the way combat works in this game is that uh units are all stacked on top of each other so you'll have a stack of 10 warriors or 20 warriors and because of that it's kind of like hard to get a feel for how strong each unit is initially because they're always a different strength based on how many there are but as you play more and more you get a, a better feeling for what stats are good what units are good and how to kind of you know leverage each faction's strengths and weaknesses and as i got a more intuitive understanding of that i think i was able to push those advantages and kind of vary my play style because of it you know what i mean yeah so james i actually want to do a deep dive on like the learning curve and burden of knowledge because i think that it's really valuable for new people coming to heroes of minor magic to kind of get an idea of what we experience as we were learning to play the game but before we do that do you want to have a quick music break yeah okay we can do that it's been you know 40 minutes so um i think some of the music in heroes of mind magic 3 is pretty good but as we'll probably discuss a bit later because each match takes so long you're gonna hear every track in the game so many times that it probably ends up being a little bit grating However, at a baseline, I think the music's pretty good, and in particular, I quite liked the battle theme, at least until I had heard it 300 times. (laughs) So, here's my favourite battle theme, which was Battle Theme 2. 
So that was the very creatively named battle theme too. <laughs> uh, so like I said, what, something I really want to dive deep into is the learning curve of Heroes of Might and Magic 3, or perhaps I should say the absence of a learning curve. Because one of the things that immediately jumped out to me as I first started playing this game was that it really kind of doesn't have the learning curve that we associate with modern strategy titles. If you sit down to play a modern RTS game or even something like Civ, there is a gentle ramp up in complexity. So uh, RTS games like StarCraft 2 do it best. They'll give you one new unit every single mission or one new building every single mission and they'll give you a mission that's kind of focused or is designed to take advantage of that unit very effectively. And what this does, this gradual ramp up, it helps you not get overwhelmed because you're only absorbing one additional piece of information at a time. Even a game like Civ starts off very simple with you only having one or two cities and two or three active units before it starts expanding dramatically in complexity as you start entering the Renaissance and later ages. What Heroes of Might and Magic 3 does is it just immediately throws nearly everything at you at once and its way of creating a learning curve is to make it stupidly easy and nearly impossible to fail. Uh, what did you think of this approach, James? Did you feel you you it was you were being gently eased into the experience, or was it too much for you? Basically, the way I feel about the difficulty in this game is that everything from a very high level view is very simple. Like this game does complexity in the way that to play it at a very base level, you really don't need to know anything. Like there's a very brief tutorial, which might I add is mostly presented to you by a PDF document, uh, <laughs> which is, uh, you know, not something I've come to expect in from modern games, but you know, we'll live with that. Just coming off the tutorial, I, basically felt like I knew everything I needed to to play the game and it wasn't until later that I realized I knew absolutely nothing about the game when I started. I think a mm -hmm. lot of the complexity in this game is kind of hidden from you but if you keep looking for it you'll probably keep finding more but ultimately you know I didn't really struggle coming on board. If I went back and played the beginning campaigns now I would absolutely destroy them but I kind of like this method where you have the freedom to do and discover as you want without being railroaded in a particular direction. If you were creative enough to discover some of that complexity, then the game will reward you for doing so. But, you know, it wasn't particularly overwhelming in my opinion. So I'm basically in two minds about it. As you said, there is definitely something to be said for allowing the player to creatively explore, you know, a very complex game like this. But I had a real problem when I did finally reach a difficult mission in that I didn't really feel like I had the tools or knowledge to actually deal with it. So the mission I, that like, I struggled with for a long time is called From Day to Night, and it's the final mission in the Long Live the King campaign. I don't know if you remember this one. No, which one was it? So, so basically you're playing um, the undead, and you start off with three towns at the top of the map, and you're invading the capital city of Arathia. And yep. you kind of need to push your way down the map. And I kept having significant problems with 
the enemy launching these really powerful incursions on my territory. And then when I finally got ready to fight them, they just retreated. It was difficult breaking through all the different layers of defense. Because the previous missions were so easy, I, ha- I didn't have anything near to close like an optimized strategy. I was just kind of clicking lazily through the game. And I mean, maybe you can say that's my fault, but if the game had a better learning curve, it, if it had sought to challenge me in a more progressive way and throw more difficulties in my path, then maybe I would have been better prepared and it would have taken me literally hours to come up with a strategy to finally beat this mission. Yeah, I did find that there was a big power spike in difficulty near the middle of the game because the game doesn't actively teach you concepts that you need to know to get better. You kind of like get to these hard missions and you're just forced to get good. There's no other way Mm -hmm. around it. You just have to think about every action that you take and try to figure out what you're doing wrong on your own. There's really nothing to help you there other than you know this challenge that's in your way and ultimately i got past it but it was like a bit of a painful process um and some of the challenge wasn't necessarily in the areas that i wanted it to be but you know overall i think that if i went back to that mission now i would absolutely destroy it especially because it's an undead level and necropolis is (laughs) is absolutely busted and they're hilarious and super fun to play as yeah necropolis was also my favorite faction i I always have an affinity for the undead in any game i play so i kind of went straight to them naturally as my favorite faction but they are also broken fortress is actually my favorite but necropolis is definitely up there and i think a big part of it is that necropolis um has a much better kind of class fantasy than the other towns they really really feel distinct from everyone else because unlike the other factions of the game when you level up a hero they have a chance to get a unique ability only to necropolis which is of course necromancy and Mm -hmm. overall the games that i've played uh the necromancer class fantasy is one of my favorites of all time however most games do a really bad job of conveying it to the player For example, in Diablo or Path of Exile, you can raise hordes and hordes of skeletons that control themselves and make the game really easy and boring. Not in Heroes of Might and Magic 3, however. Every time you finish a battle, if you have necromancy on your character, you get a certain percentage of the casualties back as skeletons, so you get more units to control in the battle screen, which uh, we haven't discussed yet, but effectively every time you start a battle, it's uh, like a turn-based strategy, similar, like think, you know, a grid-based game like Fire Emblem or something like that. Um, that it goes into and being able to control the skeletons that you're bringing back to life just makes it so fun yeah ne- necropolis is is awesome i mean necromancy is a lot of fun it's it kind of feels broken probably it is because broken. It is. it's so broken yeah. but but it's very fun but I, I don't know man like what what i learned from that campaign eventually was how essential micromanaging everything was like how essential it was spacing everything else how essential it was not wasting a single a single movement of your hero i learned to not automatically recruit uh all of my units in town the moment i needed them to hold some in reserve so that i could react to an incursion from a particular angle 
And yeah, I kind of solidified my strategy of keeping my heroes spread out and gradually making expanded process down the map. But yeah, I found it extremely difficult because it was the first time that I felt fundamentally challenged when I was like, well, I can't just stuff about now doing what I want. And I think that I would have liked if this game had a smoother learning curve, even at the cost of losing some of the, I guess, more fantastical self-exploratory experiences that you could have had. I was, I was just overwhelmed. The, the fact that your screen is littered with literally hundreds of buildings and you have no idea what any of them does is just, it's so hard. I, you kind of, I kind of got decision paralysis and then I started just making decisions at random and hoped it worked out. Yeah, see, I kind of thrive in that kind of situation. Like, all the games I really love, like Path of Exile, Dota, Magic the Gathering, have this kind of, like, burden of knowledge that, you know, getting to the bottom of is, like, the entire fun of it, right? Um, I really enjoyed learning all the ins and outs of the mechanics in Heroes of Might and Magic 3 because there was so much to learn. And I was actually, like, in the first couple of days playing i was disappointed at how simple everything was until i started yeah until i started noticing that there was so much room for optimization like everywhere in spots that i had no idea honestly to begin with like one thing that i do now that i definitely didn't do when i began is on the very first day of a new mission i will buy a new hero just because it comes with a bunch of extra units um, and then combine the two together to make one big stack and then you know use that to make a big impact in the first week whereas you know before i was buying a hero on like day three or something and not taking advantage of all the free units you get and stuff like that and stuff like arranging your army in better positions because like originally what i would do is i would just buy out all the units and then leave them in the default configuration in my hero's inventory mm -hmm. and nowadays i like do a lot of moving of them like i keep my range units on the side of the battlefield so that when the enemy tries to focus my range units they have to make a decision of which one they'll go for rather than having them right next to each other i'll keep my melee units in the middle so that they can run down the center row when they're and once they get like kind of in range they can either move up or down to preserve movement stuff like that that i just had not thought about the first few days going in that really once i understood the game better was able to comprehend some of the stuff that i could optimize it was really fun for me i should clarify that i'm not against complexity in fact the complexity of this game is one of its strengths I'm more talking about the process of learning the information. Oh, yeah, it wasn't very good. Uh, I'll, I'll give you another example. <laughs> you have an army, and then you see a hero with their army. How are you meant to determine whether you can win that fight or not, or whether you need to retreat and get more troops and fight them? What What is the, um, what is the process as a new player... How do you figure it out? Um, you attack them, and if you lose, you reload your game. Exactly, James. Uh, I, don't, I don't think there's any other way around that 
The game does an extremely poor job of communicating the strength of another, you know, stack of units or another hero. And even now I struggle with it because when you mouse over a stack of enemies or another hero, it doesn't say they have 10 flies and 15 lizards. It says they have lots of lizards and a horde of flies, whatever the fuck that means, right? And fair enough, it says what those terms mean in the PDF, but you have to go out of your way to memorize all these terms and i hadn't been bothered to do that and it screws me over even now yeah and i mean even just when you first start playing you just don't know the difference between a tier 4 unit and a tier 2 unit now by the end of the campaign when you've played all the factions you gain a natural understanding of of where of roughly how strong each unit is so so it's all good then but i mean it is a problem that so your typical RTS has the advantage of extrapolation. Like uh, you can see four Marines fight two Zerglings and then you can say, well, what about 20 Marines first five, fight, you know, 10 Zerglings? And you can have a rough heuristic, a rough thing to guide you as to the relative strengths of, uh, of these units. Um, a game like Civilization, the units are spread out on individual tiles. So you get to see lots of one-on-one combats. Heroes is like all of this complexity shoved into such a tiny space and you need to make a hugely impactful decision. Do I fight these guys and lose all my units or not? Based off a massive swathe of complex information because there's also like the buffs that the the hero, you know, what, what artifacts does the enemy hero have? What magic do they have? What passive buffs do they have? What magic do you have? What pass- passive buffs do you have? It's crazy complicated that decision but it's impossible for a new player to make that decision in good faith so i don't know if that's a problem intrinsic to this kind of game but it was very irritating that the way i learned was you know failing and reloading a bunch yeah i agree with you that the like the on-ramp is pretty rough honestly but i think um at least in my opinion that it was pretty worth it by the end uh there is a lot of depth here and there's a lot of things to exploit and use to your advantage but you know getting to that point where you're knowledgeable enough about the game um is pretty rough to begin with yeah and like i agree with you i think that once you've actually got a decent understanding. And I don't want to say a good understanding because I know these games are like even more complex than I can possibly imagine. But once you have a rough understanding of the mechanics of the game, it's actually really enjoyable to to start making decisions on, you know, whether you can engage or fall back or whatever you need to do. I just wanted to say that as a newcomer, it was an overwhelming experience. It, it is a lot that gets thrown in your face at once. Yeah, it wasn't entirely bad, but it could definitely have been a lot smoother. Um, so I kind of want to talk about each of the towns mm-hmm. um, because I think that they're probably the main draw of the game, honestly, is each of the factions. And there are eight of these. Um, so I guess most game, like a game like StarCraft, for example, only has three factions, but I think the factions in other games are a bit deeper than the ones here. At least that was my initial impression. Um, how do you feel about the way the game separates each of the factions in this game, Pat? Do you think they did a good job of making each of them feel distinct? I think that thematically they feel distinct. 
I think that in terms of their strategic approach, as I alluded to earlier, I think it's only very subtle and nuanced differences. Now, it does sound like you have had a different experience with me in relation to this. And I don't yes. want to say there are no differences because obviously there are. Like it's it's a complex strategy game and there's a lot going on, particularly when you take into account like the specialist buildings that a lot of the factions have. But I will say the difference in factions has literally nothing on your RTS games like Warcraft and StarCraft. Like the way the Zerg approach a game of StarCraft strategically is so different from the way the Terrans do. And it's not just in terms of the different roles the units, you know, are trying to accomplish and their strengths and weaknesses. It's fundamentally how they operate, stuff like creep spread versus, um, you know, mules, just completely changes how these how these factions play against one another. I want to maintain my overall stance, I guess, that the strategy in Heroes of Mind and Magic is primarily about economic domination and map control. There are slight differences in the way in which you go about it, but fundamentally it does feel very similar. So for the most part, I definitely agree with you. Um, you know, like I said, these aren't as deep as something like StarCraft, but I do think there are a lot of subtle differences that as you play the game more become much more apparent. My favorite faction, Fortress, is situated in a swamp town uh, and it's filled with all sorts of things like bugs and gnolls and all sorts of weird kind of units that statistically, you know, don't have the best stat lines compared to other factions, but they have a lot of weird effects on their units. For example, there is this dragonfly that you get quite early into a map, which is very fast. It can cross the battlefield in about a turn. And when it hits an enemy unit, it A, purges them of beneficial effects, and B, applies a weakness debuff to them so that they, uh, you know, they attack a lot weaker. And in General Fortress, when their heroes level up, they get a bit more defense statistically than other factions. So... One thing that I would do on Fortress is that early on I would build a lot of flies and then when a battle starts I would shoot them all over to the enemy's ranged units which, you know, in this game when there's an enemy in melee range of your archer they can't shoot across the map. They have to do this really pathetic melee strike um, against the adjacent enemy. So I would tie up the enemy's archers with these really cheap kind of plentiful flies that I would split into a few stacks which would allow my like slower units to get in and start applying their own debuffs um as opposed to something like uh tower which really emphasizes you getting good magic and having a bunch of ranged units where you bait the enemy faction into you while slinging spells at them so i found that in general there was a fair bit of diversity in gameplay once you started making use of each faction's individual strengths and weaknesses. So you're talking mainly about the tactical screen, right? Because I, I was more referring to the the strategical approach, like what you're doing on the overworld map, the sorts of resources you're controlling, etc. Because I agree with you, tactically, your unit composition definitely changes how you approach those fights. But um, my point was more to the 
the overall approach. Oh, okay. Yeah, sure. So again, like I said earlier, with Fortress, I really like winning before I get to like tier five units or something. Mm -hmm. So I would just rush out of my base and try to grab as many resources that aren't too far out of the way, but ultimately take a lot of towns in like the first couple of weeks. Whereas, you know, something, something like Tower or Castle, I'm much more happy to take an approach where I gather as many mines as possible at the start um, to get a long-term economy going until I can get my really late-game units to start taking over the map with. So did you find, you know, we both played through the campaign, were, were your strategies determined based on the faction that you were playing in the campaign or was it more based on the campaign mission's goals? Because I didn't feel like I had the ability to, I guess, play to my faction strengths. I was more playing the mission goal. So like you, during the campaign, I think I played every faction very similarly, and it wasn't until I'd finished the campaign and gotten better at the game mm -hmm. and started playing random scenarios like outside of the campaign that I was able to start doing that. Sure. Um, but basically, you know, in the campaign, I didn't have enough knowledge of my factions to be able to leverage them okay. um, like I do now. Yeah. Okay, yeah. So I, I guess I, I didn't play nearly as much um, random scenarios as you did. I only played two or three. So uh, I don't have that sort of broad sense of expertise I just felt I got better at overcoming the challenges that were presented to me in the campaigns. And it always felt like I was, I guess, just doing the best with the units I had before, you know, reaching that critical juncture where I could punch through. Yeah, sure. I mean, like, you said you liked Necropolis, right? Surely you noticed that uh, vampire lords were incredibly overpowered because, like, near the end, every time I had a Necropolis town, I was rushing those bastards, like, as fast as I could because uh, as soon as i got those it felt like it was game over a lot of the time yeah it's funny i i felt more like it didn't matter what units i had like obviously it did but it was more about it was more about i guess micromanaging my economy i felt that okay. was my main route to victory as opposed to building particular army compositions right i did notice that some units were stronger than others and i would prioritize some units over the others but i felt that was almost i felt that was less important than the micromanagement on the strategical layer yeah i think that um, it matters in both because when you prioritize certain units and like you don't waste your money on others or your days building the buildings of other units you like get this little efficiency boost that allows you to kind of go hard in one direction um mm -hmm. as opposed to like if you go you know for a like a balanced kind of progression uh you don't really get those power spikes when you need them generally when i played the game i would look to try to control as many of the mines as possible yep. um not engage towns directly and kind of bait heroes out of them because when you fight a castle or a town if a hero is garrisoned inside them they get these defensive structures on the battlefield like uh you know, the ramparts with archers on them or some walls to defend the melee units. So or wizards I try... shooting at you. Or wizards shooting at you, yeah. So I try as much as possible to bait people out of their towns before fighting them and then fight the weakened structures after the hero's gone. Yeah, same thing. Um, on that mission where I was struggling, I actually had... I baited one of the armies into capturing my towns and then I fought them 
when they were in my town so that they couldn't retreat because I was mm. having an issue where they kept retreating. And uh, that was one way I figured, huh, they can't retreat if they're in a town. Yeah. Um, which were your favorite factions? Uh, definitely Necropolis. And um, I actually quite enjoyed uh, the simplicity of Tower, I think they're called, you know, just the basic human faction. Castle. Castle. I quite enjoyed the simplicity of Castle. Oh and my their, god, you're a Neanderthal. <laughs> Why? I was so Castle? sick of playing fucking Castle by the end of the campaign. It's like 60% of the missions are fucking Castle, and they're the most boring faction by far. Yeah, no, I just I just like how straightforward their, <laughs> um, their game plan is. Uh, I, th- I think Necropolis was by far my favourite. They also just felt really strong like all their units seem really good but you know i liked i liked the archers that shot twice and i liked the titans like it was just just a good solid army so tower is the one with the big tower in the middle that gets titans and lots of wizards and castle's the one with griffins and angels no sorry yeah i mean the one with angels yeah sorry i'm getting them confused yeah i don't know i just wanted to play as fortress and stronghold more and there was only (laughs) one set of campaigns where you got to play as them and they were like you had to choose which ones that was unfortunate um i was so sick of castle by the end to be honest i because they're so i guess vanilla there's not a Mm. lot of ways you can take advantage like all their units are really strong um, but they don't do anything special, and I find that kind of dull, honestly. Uh, Necropolis, you're right, though, is probably one of the most enjoyable factions, just because their class fantasy is just so good, thanks to necromancy and all of their units. Like, one of the things in this game that I noticed later on is that when a hero's movement speed on the map is in part determined by the slowest monster in your inventory. So all of Necropolis's heroes move so slow because they're full of skeletons. And skeletons have like one of the worst movement speeds in the game. Because of course they do. They're just like shambling bones across the battlefield. There's um, another burden of knowledge thing. How are you meant to know that <laughs> without reading it online? Yeah, well, I actually did look it up because I was like, why the hell are my heroes moving so slow when I remember the other factions moving a lot faster and like Mm. like i said so i'm gonna keep going back to fortress because they're the faction that i know the most about now but when you start a new fortress town those flies that i mentioned earlier they have seven move speed which is like a lot so one of the things you do is you buy the first hero on the first day um, move all of your units onto one big hero and leave exactly one fly on this other hero that you used to scout with because he has heaps of movement speed with just that one unit. And, like, you know, that kind of little optimization thing um, I found really fun. <laughs> <laughs> you do. You do find optimization fun. See, I, I don't know if I'd find all these optimizations fun. Like, it's incredibly, it's, a, it's an incredibly finicky game. Like that was yeah. my experience. Yeah. It's it's very much about micromanaging your way to victory as opposed to coming up with one brilliant tactical stroke. It's like it's about winning by inches, gradually, gradually. And I oh, don't until you win, right? Like yeah. it's like you do a lot of little micromanagements and then you get to this point where you no longer need to do that because you've just won the game and the rest is just going through the motions. And like I I don't hate that, but um 
I have to say, after hours of it, it does start to grate on you a little. It's an exhausting game. No, I disagree. Yeah, but you're you're a you're a part of the exile person. I I can see why that would appeal to you. I personally found it a little too much. Like I could I could play the game for a few hours, but after a few hours, I needed to take a break and relax my brain because every single turn, it was like. All right, what is it we're doing? All right, we're moving this hero to this hero. We're moving this army to here. And there's an artifact over here that I want this guy to get, but I need to move my hero that actually has an army to clear the way. Yeah. Now that that enemy is dead, I can use this other unit that does it, that only has one unit to actually pick up those resources. And this goes on and on and on uh, as you're deciding all the bits and pieces. It's a lot, yeah. a lot easier in Civilization when it takes 20 turns to build a building. Because uh, you get yeah. <laughs> you get your attention nice and spread out, but every single turn of heroes is like, man, it, there's there's a lot going on, and it can be it can be tiring. Yeah, I, I found it really satisfying that like there's so many decision points that really matter in the game. Everything that you do like increases or decreases your chance of victory. I think that the level of control you have is really satisfying. Um, there are some like easier decisions. For example, every time you level up your hero and you get the option of random skill A or upgrade a school of magic, you upgrade the school of magic because uh, magic in this game is absolutely broken in half. Um, did you have that same experience? A hundred percent. So, so the thing about the magic is that not only do magical spells become like you get access to more and more powerful magical spells. Your old bad spells also get retroactively insanely upgraded when you become stronger in that school of magic. Uh, for oh, for yeah. example, the slow spell, which is a single target slow that gives someone, I don't know, half movement speed or something, when you have sufficient um, upgrades in earth magic, it just casts it on every single unit Everything? on the yeah. other side of the screen. So you you get more powerful spells and your old spells become busted in half as well. It's a it's a pretty pretty nasty combo. There are some really insane spells too. Like um, I think the strongest spell I encountered was called Berserk. Mm-hmm. And Berserk is an AO like an AoE targeted spell that causes like enemies hit by it to start fighting their own allies. And you just like you walk up to a defended castle and you just cast it inside their city walls and you just watch their population just start tearing each other to shreds while you do nothing. Basically automatically win the fight sometimes. It's uh it's nuts. Like the magic in this game is busted and it makes it so fun to play sometimes. Yeah, and I have to say that, like, from a multiplayer balance perspective, it may be a problem. Oh from my a, god, it would be a nightmare. From a single-player perspective where you're just having fun with the campaign and playing, it's really fun. Like, it's it's one of the things that adds diversity to the gameplay experience. Sometimes it's fun to break single-player games. Not everything needs to be perfectly balanced when you're playing by yourself. Yeah, and the magic doesn't only help you in combat. 
there is magic that you can use can out of combat on the world lap and it's yeah it's more broken <laughs> than the combat magic by far like so there are two spells in particular that allow you to break the game in half um the first you mentioned is town portal which when upgraded lets you spend a bit of mana to instantly teleport to a target town and what this effectively means is that every time the week starts your hero will teleport to town a buy all the units teleport to town b buy all the units teleport to town c buy all the units you can do it more than once on a turn it's not limited to once a turn it's yeah it's so, just how much mana you have so stupid yeah and there's a second spell called dimension door which i don't know if you ever got it but it yeah. basically ignores because um the movement on the world map in this game it's not like grid based or anything you just you have a stamina bar that kind of decreases as you move in any direction but with dimension door it just lets you teleport to a point on screen without consuming your stamina so what i was doing because on the final mission of this campaign of the entire game I had both Dimension Door and Town Portal on a hero, so it was like every day I would teleport to every town, buy every unit that I could, Dimension Door like seven times across the map until I found an enemy hero, annihilate them, teleport back to base, rest so I got my mana back, and then every single day I would just teleport like a hundred times, just decimating everything I found. It was nuts. Basically, um, I- if you, when you consider that when we've been talking so much about map control as being essential to victory, Town Portal and Dimension Door just give you perfect map <laughs> control. So funny. It's like yeah. Instantitis Worms anywhere you want with basically no penalties. It's, it, yeah, it, once again, it just breaks the game in half if you can reach that stage. It's just but like It's a single-player game for the most part, so who cares, right? It makes it super fun because um, you're not guaranteed to get every spell in the game. Um, mm. When you purchase your mage tower in your building, it gives you a selection of random spells. So when I buy a mage tower level 1, it gives me three of the like eight possible level 1 spells and then the same for level 2 through 5. Um, and to mentioned doors like a level five spell which you only get one of so you know it's a bit of a, a bit of a roll the dice game to hope you get the good one but when you yeah, do makes, man you go off i kind of agree with you the randomness makes it feel more earned when you do get to go off uh it's yeah. a similar thing to what i have with binding of isaac like in binding of isaac you have these runs where you're just kill every single boss in like a quarter of a second and if that were to happen every single time it wouldn't be a very good game but, but when it does have happen, it happen every yeah. now and then oh uh, yeah it feels it's it feels so good that variance in experience is very very important james i think uh i think we should have another music break and then maybe we can get into the tactical screen because we've yeah. alluded to it a lot but we haven't gone into it in detail yeah sure so um which song would you like to pick pat so as the person who is obsessed with uh with zombies and skeletons i of course picked the necropolis town theme uh i was i'm a bit lower on the soundtrack than you are james i it i don't want to say it's a bad soundtrack it's just This kind of like orchestral sort of pleasant sounding soundtrack on the whole doesn't appeal to me that much. And because I don't have any emotional investment in this game, because it's purely a mechanical, strategic, cerebral experience, I don't really value the music as an atmospheric thing. However, 
I do like this track. It's a little bit different from the more lighter orchestral tracks that tend to be, you know, 75% of the tracks. It is a bit darker, a bit more atmospheric, and it is fitting to the evil factions, which I do love playing. So this is Necropolis Town. Before we went to that music break, you did say that you liked playing as the evil faction, so I'd just like you to justify for me your enjoyment of playing Inferno, please. Inferno? <laughs> Inferno, the um, the devil town, the one that sucks ass. Well, I mean, like, yeah, I have also read online that, you know, Inferno is really bad. But what do you mean I guess read I online? Found... You don't have to read it online, it's just awful. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so so like I said, my my general experience with this game was one where the macro economics and macro positioning and controlling territory always seemed far more important to me oh, than no, 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 the problem with Inferno, right, is that one of their units gets actively worse when you upgrade it, right? Like they've got this Which range. One? The Magog, um, the ranged unit that when upgraded hits in an AoE, which you think would be the coolest thing ever. But what actually means is every time it attacks, you like decimate your own army by accident. Um. <laughs> I, I kind of like So I, I didn't actually hate that because it felt like a challenge on the tactical screen to try to position my units to best take advantage of that if that if that makes sense yeah it's probably objectively bad however i liked the idea of an aoe attack so much that i didn't hate it as much i kind of get that right but like yeah there's so much going on in this game that between battles i just completely forget that that was a thing so every time i went into a fight i would make the same mistake of blowing up my own dudes every single battle like every single one i would do the same dumb mistake and so every time i had to play inferno i was like i'm just i'm just not leveling up this unit because i'm too stupid to play this faction yeah that's that's a fine decision to make i mean i i tended to upgrade the higher tier units um in the inferno faction i agree that it did feel very weak it just seemed to have a lot of 
melee run at them fodder enemies that kind of took a lot of damage and didn't do enough damage. Yeah. Uh, it's just kind of mediocre dudes. Yeah. They're no they're definitely my least favorite faction. Um right after Castle who I liked initially and then just got kind of fatigued from playing them. Yeah. So um yeah, let's move on to the tactics screen as you alerted alluded to earlier. Um did you enjoy this? Uh so yes I did, but I didn't love it. Okay. Uh, I'd I'd liken it to something like chess. And in fact, I think that's kind of how I feel like likening the whole game to, which is that it's not particularly flashy. You're not assembling intricate combos. The units very rarely have like activated abilities. There's a few that do, but on the whole, they're mostly passives. And most of the tactics in the tactics screen comes from optimally putting your units in the right position and optimally uh, keeping your units from taking damage. So it was like this puzzle where, but kind of like a dry puzzle. (laughs) I, uh, I don't hate puzzles. Like I've, I, I find them interesting. There are a lot of puzzle games I like, but it didn't reach out and grab me. I wasn't like, what cool things can I do with all these units and their abilities? It was more optimizing damage and minimizing damage taken. Yeah, it is a bit like a puzzle, and I agree with you. It didn't grab me initially, but I found that once I got, you know, deep into it as I've been, you know, discussing, I started liking Mm -hmm. it a lot more. It's got this weird, um, maybe not weird, but it's got this almost rock-paper-scissors element between its melee units, its ranged units, and the faster flying units, or even mounted four-legged units whereby a lot of the melee units move very slow and often even slower because the enemy hero who's not directly on the battlefield but every kind of round you get to cast one spell with oftentimes you'll find that your melee units get slowed so it's like takes a long time for them to reach the enemy side of the battlefield and during that time they'll kind of get peppered with archer arrows and lightning bolts and that kind of thing so you're kind of incentivized to rush your flyer units at their archers to stop them shooting at you but your flying units are pretty fragile in general and immediately rushing them up to the archers while they're protected by all their bigger beefier melee dudes can often be a bad decision so i found that kind of trying to balance that attack triangle with the spells that you've got on hand and the special abilities of your units to be ultimately a fun little combat puzzle it's it's conceptually simple and i mean that's probably true of the broader game as well like it's not demanding too much of you on face value but there is a very complex tactical sprawl that happens when you start getting, you know, full seven tier units, you know, armies attacking other seven tier armies. One of the things that I discovered was the importance of having your slow units act as defensive units and not just running them all at the enemies. Yes. So I would always hold back a couple of units to defend my range units. Uh, so they, I'd just defend for the first couple of turns and then when they started closing on my range units, I could kind of engage them to uh, to keep them away and keep my range units safe. Because those range units, man, they're probably the most powerful and valuable units apart from, you know, the tier 7 units. They're almost like your queens on the chessboard, right? I found that too. 
Uh, a lot of the battles come down to this protect the queen style gameplay where you're trying to keep your range units alive or killing the enemies first and if you can do that you usually come pretty far ahead on the battle and to kind of compensate for this the enemy ai just legs it for your range dudes so like every single time and there's not much uh, you can do about it's, it it's so yeah. frustrating it's probably correct for them to do so but it's kind of annoying that i don't know what the proper multiplayer tactical battles go like but if the range units are that important and everyone's constantly crashing on them it does kind of suggest an exploit or problem with the strategy you know with the tactics mm. and the balance i don't i don't know what it's actually like you know we're, we're amateurs playing against ai so it's possible we're overvaluing them but it is really frustrating because <laughs> you want to keep your range units alive i will um i will also mention that the units in their tiers tend to become almost exponentially more powerful as you move up tiers to the point where like a three stack of tier seven units is worth 20 tier four units or 70 tier one units. It's absurd. Like it really scales up and up and up. So while I think range units are really important, I feel like the end get like the end end game comes down to your tier six and seven units even more so than the range yeah and that 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 is the case if it does go to end game right like uh some factions you don't want to get to that end game because their tier seven units aren't as good as the other tier seven units because um archangels are are ridiculous ridiculous. yes um whereas hydras are good but they're not anywhere near as busted as archangels who apart from having insane movement strength and health uh, are able to resurrect their allies which is just nuts Uh, also there's an earth magic spell that resurrects another reason magic's insane insane, yeah so one of the things i was going to say uh talking about magic again is there are some spells that are able to effectively neuter range units like blind for example which i have to mm-hmm. say is one of the like biggest flavor fails of a spell name that i've ever heard right in any other game ever a spell called blind gives you mischance right um not in this game in this game blind is just a stun that lasts five turns and can be put on as many units as you want effectively neutering half the enemy team but uh, well i mean in in a way it's more accurate because if you were blind you wouldn't be a very effective fighter would you could at least run away and listen i don't know <laughs> but how do you run away if you're blind what you just run in a direction and hope for the best see every other game is a flavor fail heroes is the only one to do the blind spell justice yeah. as a completely busted spell yeah i guess so um it it is completely busted when i first cast it i made the mistake of assuming you could only blind one enemy unit at a time because i don't know video game logic that would be yeah reasonable. but no you can just like stun everyone for as long as you want it's nuts um although you do only have one spell so it is opportunity cost but it's not exactly a, a wasted use so i want to compare this game to into the breach because i like comparing every single tactics game in existence to into the breach because i love it Uh, In Into the Breach, you control just three units, but those three units have a wide array of activated abilities, and it leads to a tremendous amount of depth in how you're sequencing these abilities and how they interact with one another. And I just want to contrast that to 
heroes tactics, which give you a lot more units and a lot more varying amounts. In um, but but which lacks, I guess, the interactivity and weight of decision making and ability to create like combos, interesting combos with your units that into the breach has. Neither one is superior to the other. It's purely a matter of preference. I find Heroes is a lot more like chess, where it's all about incremental advantage and kind of like, once again, optimizing your how, how you play to deal the most damage and take the least losses. Whereas something like Into the Breach, a lot more can hinge on a single decision and regularly does. And I feel you're doing more intrinsically interesting things. I think my preference will always be towards into the breach style oh my god patrick can you imagine if every single combat encounter in this game took that long and was that intense it would be a nightmare right i think a version of this game could exist where the units had activated abilities they do though i i don't know how you'd balance it well there's a few that do but the vast majority of them either have passive abilities or like on hit chance, there's a 20% yeah. chance for this yeah. thing. I, I mean, I agree with you that there's not like a huge amount of depth in the combat, but I think that if you did introduce that amount of complexity into this specific part of the game, you would kind of have too much overall. I think that uh, it's a benefit to Heroes of Might and Magic 3 that the combat's pretty straightforward for the most part. Sure. I think that one of this game's strengths is the speed at which you can play it at if you know what you're doing. Um, and that's helped with things like being able to move enemies' movement speed up so high that you can barely see it in your own to the point where instead of watching the walk animation, you just flick across the map. I think that if you bogged it down with that kind of gameplay that you're describing, you'd have a worse product. That is true, and I guess, like, overall, the way I would typify the Heroes of Might and Magic 3 experience in terms of its complexity is that it's a game of yeah. thousands of decisions. Like, it's thousands and thousands and thousands of micro-decisions that you make over the course of the game, and if yeah. you keep making the right decisions, you're eventually going to reach victory. Whereas my, I, I guess, my preference for strategy is to have more diversity in choices, but less of them. Whereas Heroes has a, I guess, a smaller, less variety, but it just keeps peppering you with an yeah. endless array of choices. Like a player that's good at this game is going to crush someone who isn't 100% of the time because they're just going to make the right choice way, way more often. And there's more opportunities to uh, to get it right or wrong. Yeah, and that's my preference for like single-player games and, for the most part, multiplayer as well. I do think it is a problem with the game that there's no like comeback mechanics or way to kind of bring yourself what back. What strategy game has comeback mechanics? Yeah, it's uh, Dota, maybe. That doesn't really count. Uh, I don't really Dota, know. Dota's actually not, not a bad um, example because Dota has inbuilt comeback mechanics and it's also got the power curves of the heroes, which kind of can naturally create... I guess dips and spikes in your relative team strengths. I, I think um, I think the f the factions of Heroes Three kind of has that. Like if you do an aggressive push with uh, an aggressive town early and fail, then you're probably going to lose. Even though you kind of had dominance to start with, you might lose it. But if you get control early with a late game town, like you're just going to win. Actually, um, talking about it, how did you feel about all of the like? quality of life stuff that lets you play the game a bit faster 
Uh, I was a big fan of it. Um, I kept the enemy heroes on a reasonable movement speed, uh, and also by default, the uh, like the building, like neutral buildings that you run into, their descriptions are turned off, so I had to turn them back on. But I always <laughs> had my heroes back on, you know, max move speed, so I could rapidly tab through the units and towns. And I think without that, I would have found this game excruciating. Because you're managing, as you move into the late game, man, you're managing eight heroes, four towns. There's so much to do every single turn. You need to be able to zip through it quickly. Yeah, it does a really good job of not slowing you down with unnecessary animations and stuff like that if you don't want it to. You can can play this game at a very brisk pace if you want to, and I really appreciated that, especially near the end of the game where I'd seen every unit's walk and attack animation like thousands of times. Just being able to turn that shit off and cycle through my units and do things with hotkeys was really, really nice, yeah. I I would say that... Basically, the ex- the closest experience I have to playing Heroes 3, just like a normal map of Heroes 3, is when I'm right in the middle of an all-out war in Civilization, where <laughs> I've got, like, roads built between all my cities and barbarians keep springing up out of nowhere because, you know, my people are unhappy because I'm at war and I'm constantly reinforcing the front lines and I'm being flanked by forces by sea. And, like, that sort of full-on... Civ experience, like the the most complex Civ gets, is just a standard map in Heroes. That's that's how it yeah. feels. <laughs> yeah, and, it uh, does. If, if you didn't have that ability to speed up, it would have been unbearable for me because it's difficult enough just getting my head around everything happening at once. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I guess one final, I guess maybe gameplay story-ish kind of question. I don't know where to put this one is. Do you have any like interesting stories that arose from like the variants in the game at all? Um, you go first while I think. Okay, because I have a uh, a bit of a a bit of a big meme, honestly. So spoiler warning ahead if you care about the story. Honestly, it's not a big deal, but. One of the main conceits of the story is that midway through, when you're playing as Necropolis, you kind of overtake the castle town and kill King Griffinheart. Well, I think he's already dead, but eventually you bring him back as an undead lich who then rules your army, and you go and you overtake his kingdom with him as an an evil undead. And once you swap back to the main faction, your goal is beat your father and put him to rest. So the final mission of the game has you take direct control of Queen Catherine, King Griffinheart's, you know, the undead lich's daughter who wishes to free her father from Necropolis's control. And very early on into the mission, uh, I encountered this random event that gave her a random skill and the random skill she got was necromancy oh, no. so it was like this is the biggest plot twist of all time um so with this mission in particular one of the objectives is that Catherine cannot die if she dies it's game over instantly so after she got necromancy and killed like one neutral stack and got like a skeleton i uh quickly moved her into the most out of the way fortress i could and just left her there with her single skeleton as i discussed earlier i then proceeded to get a hero with both town portal and dimension door and just decimate the map with this insane magic user 
Because I had my animations so fast, I didn't know where enemy heroes were, but like it didn't matter because I was like super mobile. Until I was on the opposite side of the map to the one Catherine was in and she was getting attacked. Oh no. So there was one hero outside that town who had two medium units and nothing else. And this hero's stats were like garbage except for his attack stat which was pretty high like a 15. And he had maximum luck which is like crit and extra movement. I lucked out so hard because this fully upgraded unit attacked this guy who, with luck, you have about a 12% chance every time you attack to crit. And every time you make a move, there's like a 12% chance that you get to move again. I probably crit an extra move like every single time I could somehow. And I still lost that battle, but I was able to put a huge dent into the enemy's army. But I still lost, and he still attacked the town that Catherine was in. And Catherine had exactly one skeleton defending her (laughs) against a huge pack of greater gorgons and, like, 50 skeletons, which was all that remained of my opponent's, like, army. So how'd she do? So my opponent immediately runs his gorgons into a landmine, which kills them. And then Catherine lightning bolts the skeletons, killing them all. Um, So it turns out that that hero was the last one on the map and that that was the final hero of the entire campaign and that I won the campaign with Catherine and her single skeleton. Oh, that is an insane story. Uh, So, James, I I have no story. I I was just listening to yours, but I don't have anything to equal that. That's that's wonderful. Well, no, I mean, I... Like I said, I, I played the game very boring. Like, when I screwed up and one of my heroes died, I just was like, all right, here we go again. I think the game has the potential for stuff like that. But, like, it didn't happen all the time. But there were, like, a couple of little instances that I'm not going to forget for a long time. Well, I'm glad you had Dwarf Fortress-esque experiences. <laughs> to me, this was more a lot more dry than that. I didn't, uh, those narratives didn't really speak to me. Yeah, okay. That's pretty much everything I wanted to say about the gameplay. Did you want to go on to kind of aesthetics, sound and graphics? Yeah, I, I think I think we've covered the main thrust of our opinions on the different layers of uh, of combat and economics and everything. So we should move on to the uh, how pretty this game is. So James, how how pretty do you think this game is? Did you like its graphics? Are you talking about the cutscenes or the in-game graphics? Because uh... I'm, I'm ignoring the existence of the cutscenes. <laughs> uh, not only do they concern the terrible story, they're also just like... Oh my yeah. god, they're so bad. They're so disappointing. The, the, the animations and the cutscenes are probably some of the worst visuals... No, no, the worst visuals I've seen on this show, hands down. Like, I cannot Worse think... Worse than Toy Story 1. Very, very disappointing. So bad. Toy Story 1 is a masterpiece compared to uh, the graphics. It has not aged her. well, sir. Uh, <laughs> it's aged better than this game's cutscenes, I'll tell you that yes, much. <laughs> um, but ignoring that, actually, I was quite impressed overall at how well they've held up. Now, of course, we're playing with this HD mod that lets us play with higher resolutions, um, which actually... Uh, 
leads me to an interesting decision point. So in Heroes Online Magic 3, all the art in this game is actually hand-drawn sprites. Everything is like 2D. And I think that the town screen, like the actual cities in um, for each of the factions in this game, look absolutely gorgeous. And then the rest of the screens, not so much. But the hand-drawn art in the actual towns is amazing. Um, and I think it's definitely like looks better than a lot of strategy, 3D strategy games that are coming out recently. The only problem is if you set the resolution to the highest possible, uh, the screen at which you play in is tiny on your monitor. So I actually uh, hurt myself a bit by purposely playing on some lower resolutions so I could actually see things. But uh, when it is that small, it does look really good. So I... um. I'm kind of split on the graphics. Yeah. My favorite part of the graphics is the overworld. You know, the screen where you spend most of your time, where you move the heroes around and you pick up gems and uh, you enter battles, that sort of thing. I think the towns look pretty good, but I did find them a little low resolution and blurry at times. Uh, and I didn't really have much in terms of animation happening to them. They were just kind of static sprites. I wasn't as high on the overworld as you are. I think when you're playing on max resolution, it looks quite mm -hmm. nice. Um, it's definitely held up quite well. I think the whole game is very playable today uh, graphically. And like some bits still look really nice. But some of the UI is a bit questionable. Like The main menus look really bad. Um, and some of the hero portraits are a bit, a very jank. Um, but on the whole, I think it looks okay still. I, I do want to point out that I think that the tactical screen is actually where the graphics are the weakest. I think that the units uh, that you're using to fight on those tactical screens, they kind of look like they, they're kind of poorly drawn. Like they're, they're kind of blurry and weirdly cut out. Sometimes it's like someone's got some scissors and has awkwardly cut around the shape of these units. So, you know, we've played a lot of old games on this show, and there's plenty of uh, hand-drawn art, like from Castlevania Symphony of Night, which I think still looks brilliant to this day. I think this is an example of mediocre art. It's not, it's not horrible, like it's not distracting, but I did notice when I went back and I looked at these units that I was like, these these aren't particularly beautiful. It's not really it's not really perfect. But uh, oh. yeah, I th I think the hand drawn overworld stuff looks still looks quite good to this day. Okay, I actually thought the battle screen looked really cool, um, especially because of the the way it plays with perspective. It's really interesting. Um, the way the battlefield is presented is like kind of almost top down where it like fades off into the distance but the way the grid the grid doesn't like stretch or compress in order to match the perspective rather the background art is drawn in this weird way where it like slopes off at the top so that um they didn't need to change the way the actual grid looks it's really interesting uh, looking at it and I think that all of the obstacles and stuff that litters the battlefield like tree stumps and skeletons and that kind of thing really blend well into the floor to the point where you probably could tell somebody that that's just the way it was drawn and they'd believe you. Yeah I agree that functionally it's actually superb like I've never seen hexagonal grids done so well where you know everything is clearly communicated and you can always move your unit to the right tile. Sometimes there'll be a 
mess of units kind of sitting on top of one another. But even then, you can generally figure out the puzzle of who all the units are and where they stand in relation to one another. So I have to congratulate it for that. I'm more talking about the individual unit sprites. And uh, I think I think that's where I'm the most disappointed, not the background screens themselves. I think in the max resolution, the unit sprites still look okay. The one problem I have with the aesthetic of this game is that the direction itself isn't particularly interesting by today's standards, like you have Warrior and Archer and Griffin. That's kind of it. None of the units have heaps of personality to them. I guess it makes sense from you know, just a pure army perspective, but I didn't find that I particularly liked the aesthetics of any of the units, although I do think that, as, as opposed to your opinion, I actually think the sprite work still looks quite good. There's this problem, right? Like, I'm just kind of over high fantasy. Um, I'm yeah. over Tolkien-esque sort of fantasy. I do appreciate that there's a lot of diversity of mythological inspirations. It's not just you know, elves and dwarves and humans and trolls. There's a lot more going on with, you know, your Afrits and Nagas and everything, and then you've got the demonic factions and everything. It's just that high fantasy is something that I've read about in a million books, I've watched in a million movies, I'm over it. And when you compare it to something like uh, something like Warhammer 40K, Warhammer 40K is so interesting and there's so many clever takes on a lot of these archetypes like Dark Elves, etc., 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 that high fantasy, I just feel it's run its course. I'm just kind of over it and I'm uninterested in it nowadays. Yeah, that's why I didn't so much like Castle as a faction and really liked Fortress, because I think that uh, Fortress and its like swampy units, like its big bulls and its lizards, were like a little more interesting than all the other factions. Uh, mm. Dungeon as well, I thought was pretty fun, but a lot of them, I wasn't super grabbed by their aesthetics, even if I was grabbed by the differences in gameplay yeah so so there are no issues with function here like i think this game is well presented from a gameplay experience it's just that nowadays unfortunately it comes across as kind of generic and boring and bland which is once again the visuals are probably not the reason you're playing heroes but it is still worth mentioning I uh, don't want to be pulled in by this uh, low opinion Patrick has. I actually think the game overall looks really good for how old it is. And I know that's not exactly what we're here to tell you, but I don't think this game's ever really going to look quote unquote bad. Um, it's always going to be playable on higher resolutions. It does a good job of communicating macro information, if not a lot of the little details that you kind of have to scrounge around to find. But, you know, purely from a gameplay perspective, I'd say it's pretty much spot on still. And honestly, all the sprite work held up a lot better than I thought it was going to. Yeah, I, like, I don't, I don't want to to say I hate it and it sucks. Like I said, I quite like the overworld. I'm just saying in a general sense, this aesthetic's kind of boring. One area where I think it does do a really good job is its sound design, though. Everything from the sound of an arrow hitting an enemy to the kind of gling as you pick up a cache of resources sounds fantastic. I, I think they did a really good job giving audio feedback for pretty much each and every action you can take in this game. 
Yeah, no, I agree with that. I love the sounds of arrows hitting enemies. Uh, in fact, most of the time I opt to play with mostly archers, but maybe that's purely because they're quite strong. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, I agree. I, I really liked the sound that plays at the start of each week, the start of a new day, when you pick up new things, uh, you know, the windscreen, the lost sound. I, I basically agree with you. Yeah, when you um when you encounter a new random neutral building and it's like, I can't, I can't I can't imitate the sound but it immediately comes to mind like the kind of rising the rising noise of discovery that they associate with it yeah 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 I quite like the sound design I, th- I think it does it does a really good job just reinforcing um, the actions you're taking it, it gives actions on the overworld a real sense of weight yeah that's true I found the sound in general along with the music in this game to be pretty decent although like as I said earlier I was so sick of listening to every track uh, by the end of the game I turned the the music off Um, when I first started playing the game I thought the music was pretty good Uh, and then I listened to it straight for like 25 hours and (laughs) you hear every track so many times and they even they obviously the developers of this game knew that this was going to be a problem because every combat and moving around the overworld has three to four different tracks in order to like help alleviate this problem but even then I don't think it goes far enough and I kind of you know just wanted a bit more from it um I think it's fine honestly but it's not the best thing i've ever heard it's very pretty but like i said i got no emotional engagement out of it which is what i look for my music more than anything nowadays the music is a way to enhance the gameplay experience i'm having and it was always just kind of in the background i actually think i know i know you consider me a heretic for listening to you know games without music but i think this is the perfect game to listen to while you're listening to a podcast yeah it's such a finicky game that's requiring you to do a lot of mechanical work but you could be doing all that kind of mechanical busy work while your mind is occupied with something i guess a bit more artistic for want of a better word And I think that would be a perfect combination. Yeah, I mean, I think one of this game's best strengths is that you can either be super focused and make sure that every single decision counts, or you can play it like a relaxing game of Civilization. The game does let you pick your play style in that way, and I think that playing the game with either a podcast or some music on is totally a valid way to play, yeah. How how do you play this game in a relaxing way? Because I cannot... The moment I have a second town or I get up to three or four heroes, I am no longer relaxed. I need to start micromanaging all of those units optimally. And I cannot just sit back and waste movement points. It's like this big opportunity cost decision tree for me. Yeah, I mean, you just play one of those games where you have one massive hero and just go around playing Uh, as if it's a one-unit game. It's not optimal, but... You know, you can do it on I the can't easier do that. difficulties. It's too painful, man. I can't <laughs> do that. Like, I just, I can't, like, maybe on day one I could do that. But now, now that I've got a better grasp on how to play. You're telling me that you never just laid back in your chair and clicked and mashed next turn and just moved from resource to resource, going back, maybe having one unit to fetch units for you? That, that's what I do after I've won the map, when, when I've conquered 75% of the territory. That's when I start to get lazy. But... The first two weeks are like far and away the most important in every game you play. That's you. 
you know, putting your flag in the ground. You need to get them right. So yeah, there's no way I can sit back and relax. <laughs> there was this um there was this one mission in the campaign that once I'd taken every city, it's the one where um there's the big overground sea and the big underground area. Yep. Um, I don't know if you had this problem, but no matter how many towns I took, the enemy kept shooting little heroes out around me. Because there's so many ways they can get around you in this map yeah. uh, and taking back a town. So it took me ages to plug every hole. And then once I'd finally plugged every hole, the enemy big bad in his major town had 400 of every <laughs> single unit. So I basically plugged every hole and then mashed next turn for like i don't know like 3 months of me not doing anything until, until i had like, him, yeah. like a thousand of every unit and just killed him with quick combat the most difficult one for me was that mission with like the 3 month time limit and you basically had to build up your forces to an apex the week before the 3 month time limit in order to kill him i don't know if you had an easier time than me but i it was down to like the last 2 days before i finally fought him yeah, I remember that one. It was quite a struggle. I think my favorite mission of the campaign was that one where your plane is um, Necropolis and you just have to gather 1,500 skeletons. <laughs> yeah, that one was pretty good. I That's probably my biggest uh, criticism of this game is that not enough things are skeletons. I think um, <laughs> this game could benefit from more skeletons. <laughs> I, uh, I thought you were going to make an actual point there, that actual point being there's not enough gimmicks in this game. Yeah, I, I completely agree. My biggest criticism of the campaign is that there's not enough gimmicky nonsense like that which changes the strategies that you're employing. Um, it's more just the drive to efficiency. I mean, one of the things that StarCraft 2 does so well as a single-player experience is that each and every mission has something super interesting that changes the way you play the game. Like yeah, uh, you yeah. control the big laser drill or there's a sun, uh, there's a ring of fire that's going around the earth. There's always something which is affecting how you play. I just didn't get that enough playing the Heroes. Yeah, game. Heroes has none of that. And honestly, if somebody just started playing this game, they probably have the same learning curve if they just played randomly generated maps as they played the campaign. Probably, like, yeah. Honestly, you know, I think just ignoring the campaign completely is probably a perfectly fine way to approach it. Um, mm -hmm. Up to you, though. When you said that, I thought you were going to talk about the factions in general, because my favorite thing about Necropolis is that they do have necromancy as a possible skill they can acquire, but no other faction in the game has something like that, and I think it's kind of like a missed opportunity. Yeah, I mean, just in general, there's there's less broad diversity in play styles, which is fine. Like, not every game needs to be some weird combo-driven, complicated, variety experience sort of thing. Some games can be like chess. Yeah, I just thought that Necropolis had the best, like, class fantasy of any of the factions just because of that passive that they got. And I kind of wish that the others had that, but... You know, it's not all bad. I think um, Fortress having all their weird on-hit debuffs kind of gives that, like, sickly feeling of the swamp that it's going for. But, you know, they could have done it better. Completely agree. It wouldn't have it wouldn't have taken much, but if they just added a little bit more characterization through gameplay to these factions, I think I would have enjoyed it more. 
Yeah, so um, I guess we've been rambling on for a long while now, um, and I think we've pretty much reached the end of our notes, right? So did mm-hmm. you want to uh, give your final thoughts, Patrick? Basically, I'll just stay straight up. I would recommend Heroes of Might and Magic 3, specifically to people who are looking for an in-depth, engaging, complicated behemoth of a game. I would not recommend this game to casual players who haven't played much of this sort of strategy game. And I wouldn't recommend it to people who are looking, you know, who who are just looking for a fun single player experience from the past. It's a very particular kind of experience. It's an insanely complicated game with an insanely complicated learning curve. And the game doesn't really go out of its way to teach you how to manage its complexities. It just kind of throws you in the deep end and says, here, have fun, figure it out. And for some people, that's going to be fantastic. They're going to love it. For others, it's going to be miserable and they're going to be turned off it after a single hour. For me, I fall like somewhere in between. Overall, I did enjoy my time with Heroes and I'm glad I played this game. However, I can't play games like this endlessly for hours and make it like the main game I play because I find the finicky micromanagement optimization just a little too much. Like nowadays, the sorts of games I play tend to be, I guess, games where, where the complexity comes from that depth rather than that breadth. And I think Heroes demanding that you make thousands and thousands of correct decisions was just a little overwhelming for me. It's a very good game, but it's also completely unforgiving in terms of its complexity. It's like, a, I, if I had to choose between recommend and not recommend, it's a recommend, but you just have to be aware of the kind of experience you're getting into. So I'm the kind of person that just spends all his spare time on his phone or his computer looking for new information to absorb. Like, the games that I play are like Path of Exile, Dota, Magic the Gathering, just things that have this huge burden of knowledge where to play the game anywhere near an optimal level, you have to study and play for hours and hours and hours in order to learn all sorts of little tedious bits of information. And because of that, this is definitely the kind of game for me, right? Like, I love that kind of thing. And because of that, Heroes of Might and Magic 3 was a game that as I kept playing it, I got more and more and more invested in to the point where I was like, usually by the end of playing a game for the podcast, I will be pretty over it, honestly. Even if I enjoyed the game, I'll be looking for the next game I want to play. With Heroes of Might and Magic 3, I just kept booting up game after game to keep trying to optimize every single bit of every turn like trying to get the most efficiency out of everything like i really enjoyed that i really enjoyed learning each of the factions what they were good at and what they were bad at and i found it to be an utterly absorbing experience where i was just one more turn just seven more days just um, another month um i just kept playing it and playing it and playing it and i really enjoyed that um i think heroes of might and magic 3 from a gameplay perspective absolutely holds up against uh, a lot of the modern day titans of strategy rpg and you know the graphics are fine the sounds fine but that's ultimately not your what you're really here for 
I completely agree with Patrick and that this game probably isn't going to be for everyone, but I do think he's overstating it a bit. I think at a very base level there is some fun to be had here, and it's not that complex until you want it to be, right? Like, you can play this game without diving into all the intricacies for a long time, I think. And because of that, honestly, I would absolutely recommend Heroes of Mind Magic 3. I think it's a fantastic game that I'm surprised I haven't played up until now. So I'm really glad we got to play it this week. So it's a very good game. It's just you got to be prepared to get into this behemoth. And I reject this idea that you can engage with this game properly as a casual <laughs> player. I, I don't think that's true. Well, we both think it's a good game. Yeah, agreed. <laughs> so uh, that was Heroes of Might and Magic 3 at a fresh two hours or so, which is one of our longer episodes, and I'm going to wake up tomorrow absolutely dreading opening up the editing software, so uh, that'll be fun. <laughs> <laughs> uh, thank you so much, everyone, for listening to us gab on about our Heroes. It was... um. It's a very interesting experience and one that I've been wanting to talk about for a long time. Uh, we are the Retrospectives Podcast. You can find all of our content at the website rspodcast.net. We've got all of our podcasts. We've got about 30 now on um, all the wide variety of games from the uh, 90s and early 2000s. And we've also got heaps of articles that you can read, most of which relate to those games. Most importantly, we would love, if you've enjoyed this episode, to come and join our Discord to continue the discussion because the reason we do this podcast is so that we can talk and argue about video games. And we'd love if you could come along and share your opinions about heroes or even modern titles so that we can continue the discussion in a more casual way yeah discord's great it's definitely my uh one of my favorite parts about doing this show is all the discussion that happens after each episode um we have all sorts of chats on there from you know gaming discussion uh off topic in anime <laughs> um a lot of that and uh you know if you've got a question about anything we've spoken about today just come on down and ask us the question in a mailbag and then we'll answer it on the next episode for you we'd love to do that um any game recommendations recommendations for us to play uh, this was a game recommendation episode actually um, definitely open to doing that and i this week had started playing uh disgaea one uh, on my own and talking about it with everybody who'd recommended it to me on the discord as part of a kind of like ongoing discussion that we wanted to do i don't believe i will ever play that game in my entire life <laughs> i don't think you will either <laughs> jrpgs don't agree with me <laughs> Yeah, well, basically we didn't have enough time to do them for the show, so I had to find a way to get some RPG discussion in the podcast in the Discord somehow. So uh, yeah, it's a lot of fun. Come on down, chill out, talk about whatever the hell you want. Honestly, it's a bit of a party. So really enjoying it so far so that about wraps this episode up thank you once again everyone for listening before we sign off jimmy what are we doing next fortnight what game are you going to subject me to now well it's just one recommendation game after another and next week we're going to be playing a game recommended by a user whose name i can't remember <laughs> 
And I went to look it up, but Patrick was rearranging the channels on Discord and accidentally, quote end quote, uh, deleted the general chat channel. So I can't scroll back and uh, find who recommended us to play Crystalis. But um, thank you to whoever it was, because I've been trying to find, as I said before, more RPGs for us to play, because uh, both of us work, well, I work full time and Patrick works all the time as well. So finding time to play longer games is hard and RPGs are always long. There's like three that are under 30 hours. So I was very glad to be recommended an RPG that we can play in such a t- short time frame. And one that I've heard has a fantastic story, which I'm sure uh, Patrick will love dissecting next to Fortnite. Yeah, well, I uh, I hate most RPGs and I hate JRPGs, so I'm sure I'll be absolutely miserable. But that's the whole point of this show, to expose the other person to no. miserable gaming experiences. It's to make Patrick specifically oh, miserable. That's why we started this All right, show. <laughs> from now on, first-person shooters only. Next 20 episodes. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> you were going to do that anyway, let's be honest. No, that is true, yeah. <laughs> um, So thank you, everyone, for listening. Uh, we'll catch you in a fortnight. Adios. See ya. See ya.